Welcome to Danny Houlihan's Irish Experience Podcast. Join Danny on a journey through the historical island of Ireland, its people and the wild Atlantic way, which is Ireland's last frontier. Experience the music and the culture that makes up the longest coastal driving route in the world. Now, please welcome your host, Danny Houlihan. Curran fought a good year on Clash or Specialta, not fail a Padraig. It's Mr. Don Lahulikon, a studio of Olive Winnowen, Winnowen the Shunana Kunde Kiri. Welcome to you all for this special program on St. Patrick's Day. Our show today is broadcast from our Olive Winnowen studio here under the mouth of the River Shannon, North Kerry Island, in the old barony of Rockdy Connor on the Wild Atlantic Way. It is a lovely morning here along the banks of the Shannon, with a soft breeze blowing in from the sea. It is clear between Kerryhead and Loophead and Kilcredan. Around me there is life, birds singing in the air and dolphins in the estuary at play. The mist is clearing. It's going to be a lovely day here on St. Patrick's Day. We start our special programme today with a piece of music I recorded on the bagpipes many years ago. This is the old Irish tune and it is fitting on the day it is, St. Patrick's Day. What a powerful tune. Representing us all today, a favourite by all musicians around the globe. Indeed, many versions will be played on fiddle, pipes, whistle and accordion today. Nave Padraig, St. Patrick, was born, it has been stated, by historians around the year 386 AD. The saint's birthplace has been much debated over the years. Some historians have stated that the saint was born in the well-speaking northern kingdom of Strathclyde. The story relates that Patrick, as a young boy, came from a wealthy family and was seized and carried off from his native land into slavery and was brought by sea to the Green Island of Ireland. Scholars believe that St. Patrick lived his early life in the northern part of the country as a herdsman, but later Patrick saw his opportunity and escaped back to his native home and family. However, this was short-lived. According to a legend, he had a dream he would return again to Ireland which he did around the year 432 as bishop and Christian missionary. Tradition has been handed down through the ages that when the Celtic Druids were preparing the Feast of Tara, Patrick, in a symbolic act, lit the paschal fire on the famous hill. This angered the Celtic Druids, who related this to the king, that if the fire was not extinguished, it would never be put out. King Lear attempted several acts to halt Patrick, but failed that first Christian light of St. Patrick would be a beacon into the centuries to come. St. Patrick preached the length and breadth of Ireland, spreading the word of the Gospels and took on the powerful Celtic Druids in their beliefs and customs, which for centuries held sway on the island of Ireland. 
Indeed, the Breton laws were in force when Patrick arrived. He challenged the laws on many occasions. Early Christian settlements did exist here in Ireland before St. Patrick's mission, and when he arrived on our shores, he added his unique touch to the Christian faith. Soon after his arrival, an early mission. The island of Ireland was a powerhouse of faith. Christian monasteries were founded during his life, and holy scholars and missionaries travelled abroad, spreading the word of Christianity. The saint's death has been recorded as in the year of 493 AD. However, the date of his death, as that of his birth and arrival to Ireland, has been debated over the decades. After St. Patrick's death, many stories have been related to his Christian works and legends, one of which involved the banishing of evil snakes from the island of Ireland. The myth relates that Patrick, while on a 40-day fast, was confronted by a number of evil serpents, who tried to disrupt his religious fast. Patrick, not afraid of the advances, ran the disgusting evil creatures off the island into the sea, thus ridding Ireland of the snakes. So much for the disgusting snakes. Whether he was born in 386 AD or died in 493 AD, St. Patrick left his legacy on the island of Ireland and in the minds and hearts of all that celebrate his mission on the 17th of March around the world each year. After hundreds of years, Irish communities around the world on this day celebrate our patron saint with Irish dance, music, parades and culture. So much from its legends and snakes. Now sit back and enjoy one of my episodes. And in keeping with the day that's in it, celebrating the Apostle of Ireland, St. Patrick, we take a journey back to the era of the Viking raids on the Cashin River in North Kerry. Monks fleeing to a high lofty round tower of Ratu for safety. And the story of Derico or Durramakua. And the hermitage of Dysert and St. Trilok. Welcome to my second episode in the series. In this podcast, I will journey back into the landscape of Ireland's rich history and explore the hidden past and its people. I hope you will enjoy the rich historical tapestry I will weave through the history of its people and the landscape which they lived. Through its people, its rich heritage and culture that makes up Danny Hulham's Irish experience. Over the last 40 years, I have travelled the countryside of Kerry. Three of the most captivating places that I have visited, time and time again, is Ratu Round Tower, Derrico Churchyard and Dysert Eid Threelig. Ratu Round Tower, or in its Irish name, Ravaig Natuskart, is located just on the approach to the beautiful village of Ballyduff, Tralee, County Kerry. The high tower stands out against the Irish skyline as a reminder of the days when Christianity was in its heyday, when monks worshipped and chanted within the confines of that great monastic centre. It takes its illustrious name Ra, meaning fort, Vaig, a plain, and Tuskert, the north, the fort on the northern plain. Its history is colourful. Tradition relates that the monastery was founded by Bishop Lugok in the 6th century as a place for sanctuary for meditation and prayer to the Divine God. His feast day is the 6th of October. However, from my research, Lugok has been mentioned in the Caldee of Angus Cayley Day and also Laubrach, as being in several monastic places in Ireland. This highlights his importance as a religious person at that period of Irish Christianity. A local tradition in the area of Ballyduff states that the tower was erected to commemorate a great battle that took place in a field nearby called the paddock. Over the years in the paddock, a few humps have been seen, but never touched or ploughed by the locals not to upset the sleeping warriors. Unknown as a poet, his word speaks of the knights of Ratu. The nights are dust, and their good swords are rust. Their souls are with the saints we trust. The tower was constructed possibly in the 9th century as a clig or bell house. 
to hold the great bell of Ratu, which was used to summon the monks to worship in those bygone days. The tower is 92 feet in height, with a circumference of 47 feet 9 inches. The walls are 3 feet 10 inches at its base, with hammered sandstone blocks rising to six floors. At one stage there was a wooden stairs to all its floors, but nothing now remains today. Architecture of Ratu Round Tower The doorway has a unique feature, cut in relief, a unique culvininary carving visible to this day, testament to the dexterity of our ancestors in those bygone days. The windows of the Round Tower, which were used for lookouts, are situated on the Cardinal Points. Thus, a great view of the plain of Nor Kerry and the inland waterways was obtained. Where did the builders of Ratu obtain the materials for the tower? Limestone was obtained from the Kilmore area, which at that time had an abundance of red sandstone. Timber, was used in the high scaffolding, was obtained from the dense forest that surrounded the area. All natural resources at hand for the building of a monastic centre. Standing at the base of the famous round tower, I can get a feeling of the past. The builders who cut the sandstone blocks, fashioning their thickness before laying course by course to reach the top of the tower. One can imagine the sound of the famous bell ringing out from the lofty belfry, warning the monks of the approaching attack from Viking invaders. The monks, frantically gathering their religious items, entering the tower by its wooden steps, the door closing behind them in an attempt to survive the attack. A spring well was located near the settlement for all to use, apart from being used daily by the monks. In latter times it was used by the lepers, who had a colony nearby. The well was known at that time as the Well of the Lepers. It is thought that the monastery faded out at the end of this period. The ruins of the impressive Augustinian Abbey is still to this day located to the east of the tower and was used by the order from the 13th century. In the year 1200, we read in the annals of the history that the night hospitals of St. John took control. Later, it became a house for the Eurasian canons. This order left the area around 1590. We read in the State Papers of 1276 that during the reign of King Edward of England confirmed Brother Christian as Abbot of Ratu in the year 1366. And the centre was in trouble due to the harbouring of Varus Nichols and his army while levying war in Kerry. It should be noted that the monks of the centre were lords of Parliament, thus the importance of Ratu. The Ratu estate and abbey was destroyed by the Irish on the approach of the English army in the 1600s, fearing its capture. In the 1700s, the lands of Ratu were held by Anthony Stoughton and his family. Hags of the Castles, or Sheila Nagig. Ratu Round Tower has a number of unique features. One is a Sheelanigig, or Sheelanigig, located in the upper south-facing window, now defaced due to weather and time. These pagan deity symbols, cut on relief on stone, were attributed to the belief of fertility or placed within the settlement was for the guarding off of evil attackers. Other sources have stated that these Sheelas presented good fortune, and protective powers so they could disarm any would-be attacker on seeing it, thus protecting the religious site. Considered by some as heathen relics, Sheila and the gigs exhibit female features, that is, anatomical, suggesting association with childbirth. These ancient heathen relics were honoured here in Ireland before the coming of Christianity and were used and adopted by the Christian settlements into their buildings, such as Ratu and had been unearthed from time to time from the bogs of Lixna. Due to the lack of research on the Sheelinigig, further research into its history is needed, and more comprehensive collating of data completed. A causeway, which was elevated from the landscape, 
ran from the tower to the river, where it became known as Boher Garan Bon, White Horse Ridge or Monk's Road. This road, or trackway, led to the Bogs of Dyshurst, which was a hermitage in Lixna, several miles distance. We now leave Ratu and return to the main road and pay a visit to another special place called Derriko or Duramakua on the grassy banks of the Cashin River, just on the outskirts of Bally Duff, only a few miles west from the tower. During the 8th and 9th century, the countryside was ravaged by the wrath of the Norse invaders. No one would escape, or this tranquil quiet spot could be spared by the sword of the Viking marauders. Derricko Church was constructed in a place for worship, meditation and learning, in a special area free from the eyes of the heathen warriors. However, around the year 812, the river darkened with the sails of the Viking longships. The monastic settlement of Inish Labyrinth, which was located at the mouth of the river, put up little resistance, with all the monks put to the sword. The remainder took flight to the nearby sanctuary of Derricko, which at that time was surrounded by an oak wood and out of sight of the river. Derricko, or Durramokoa, was mentioned in the failure of festologians of Angus Cayley Day as the 6th of October. Angus the Caldee was a reverend hermit, scholar and founder of the Caldee movement in the 8th century. He has been associated with Limerick and Derricko. March the 11th marks his death. The Caldee established a hermit-style worship of God in quite secluded places like Derricko in early Christian society. The translation of Derricka, or Durra Makua, has been described by O'Donovan as the oak wood, or the wood of the battle, which is connected with a battle that took place on the river at Inish Labyrinth. Illuminated scripts were possibly written at Derricka, and above all, meditation to the divine, with daily prayers led by the leader of the hermitage. Tombs that are there in contemporary times are that of the stacks of Kerry landowners from the North Kerry locality. Approaching the ivy-clad ruins, one can feel the sense of stillness and meditation, a place of sanctuary in those bygone days when the monks of Derricko were living there on the banks of the Cashin River, fishing, meditating and praying to the divine. Today, all that remains is a ruin of its former glory, one south wall is now gone, its east-facing window is still there, welcoming the dawn of a new day. No more the chants of the monks echo in Derricko's ivy-clad walls, but one can just imagine the settlement at prayer. Today, its ivy-clad ruins is surrounded by a graveyard, only in use by local families who have loved ones buried there. We leave Derricko monastic settlement now, and journey on to Lixna, a short distance, to another special place called Dyshirt Ytrilig. In Lixna village, take the turning to the left at the crossroad and continue for a mile. Then take another left, will take you past the limestone hill where once stood the Lixna monument to the Lords of Kerry, which once stood in that location. We will visit this place in another episode. Continue along the winding road until you see a signpost. This directional marker will take us down a narrow road to the church and graveyard of Dyshirt, the former hermitage. Arriving at Dyshirt Tree League, one can feel the isolation of this beautiful place. Trees line the present roadway to the ruin. A sense of calm and quiet prevails, with only the sound of the river, which runs just outside the bank, facing in a small. Dyshirt takes its illustrious name from St. Trelock, an Irish saint who was well respected here in those early days of Christianity. The collar or fetter of St. Trelock. Tradition relates that as a young boy, Trelock had two brothers. One day, the brothers made a collar or fetter as a joke and tied and locked the fetter on young Trelock and threw the key into a local river. 
Trelock later departed his family home and chose a life as a hermit, travelling Ireland and praying to God. Finally, his journey led him here, to the banks of the river in Lixna, where he constructed his small dyshirt, or hermitage. Many years later, his brothers came looking for him and found Trelock at Dyshirt in Lixna, praying to the Divine. His brothers were very happy to see him and he welcomed them to the Dyshirt and his home. Trelock had forgiven his brothers for the collar and feather they had placed on him many years ago. In celebration of their visit, Trelock asked a local fisherman to cast his net out on the river to catch a few salmon. Later that day, the fisherman returned with his nets, with four salmon. Returning to the dye shirt, the fisherman offered the four salmon to Trelock. No, said the hermit, I will only take one. The fisherman left, and Trelock began cooking the salmon on an open spit, where the old ruins of the church is located today. When the salmon was cooked, Trelock and his brother sat down to eat. No sooner Trelock had inserted a large knife into the fish, a key fell out. It was the same one his brothers had thrown into the river many years previously. Mass was celebrated with his brothers. The key unlocked the saint from his fetter, thus his trial was over. On the bank of the river, I'm looking at a calm, winding river. There are a few boats here. It is very peaceful. One can just imagine the fisherman hauling in his net with the salmon in it and the fire lit by Trelock on the banks of the river. Looking westward towards Ratu and the bogs, we can imagine the sight of the monks in meditation walking along Bohrgaran Bon towards a hermitage for retreat and prayer. Today, all that remains of the dye shirt is part of a wall of the old church, adorned with ivy, surrounded by a graveyard. This graveyard is used by locals. Noted tombs here are that of the local landlord George Hewson of Innesmore and others. Leaving Dyshirt and its special hermitage, one can respect the past and wonder on the lives of these people who were here on the bank of the river in peaceful meditation. Boher Garon Bon, Whitehorse Ridge or Monks Road. West of the dye shirt, an elevated roadway was located, close to the hermitage, which ran from the round tower, crossing the bogs of Banniar. This structure was called Whitehorse Ridge or Monks Road. It was also known as Bohor Nalawar or the Leper's Road. Only short sections remain of this priceless relic, buried beneath the bogs. During peat extraction, large oak timbers with pegs have been unearthed. The road gets its name from the white mud in the area. This elevated trackway ran from Dyshire to Ratu Round Tower Monastic Centre in a westwardly direction. The monks used the hermitage as a retreat and the association with lepers was at Ratu there was a clear spring well called the Leper's Well, which helped in the curing of leprosy. The importance of the settlements at Ratu, Derico and Dyshers must never be forgotten, as in their heyday they played a major part in the Christian past of Ireland. The workers that built the great tower with their bare hands and the abbey no long forgotten, but their work remains testament to the believers of the Christian faith. The well of the lepers, now hidden within the landscape of Ratu. In its past, it sustained the settlement, the sick and the thirsty. The ivy-clad abbey is silent now, where once the sounds of chanting monks echoed, a part of our past, a part of our heritage.
Oh, the famous ruins of Ratu Rountol, Dormakua, Derriko, and Daisherty Trelik, and the legend of Old Trelok. Now we journey back to the old Ballier faction fight of 1834. They fought for the sheer love of fighting. Welcome to episode 10 of my podcast. They fought for the sheer love of fighting. Yet within a period of over 10 years from the fight, they fought over fish, with the great Irish famine looming. A part of our heritage, interwoven into the tapestry, which is Danny Houlihan's Irish experience. A large turf and bog deal fire blazed in the old thatched house in our Kerry. As the sun was setting on the Shannon Estuary, two large greased blackthorn sticks lay close to the heart, warming for the impending battle. Hanging on the Sugon chairs either side of the fire, there lay two white shirts, clean to be worn, and the smell of potato cakes in the iron oven wafted into the old kitchen. The sounds of loud voices outside intensified into the morning. The old woman beside the fire looked worryingly in the direction of her husband's face, who was deep in thought, glancing into the fire. Tomorrow will tell the story, she said, a story which history would relate forever as the great Ballier faction fight. Will he return alive, she said. On St. John's Day, 24th of June, 1834, on the northern part of the Strand, tents were being erected by vendors selling potting, whiskey and food. The sound of horses was evident in the air and the carnival atmosphere was developing with horses and riders arriving. The Santos at that time was well inhabited with people due to the sizable population of the area at that time coupled with rising evictions. Early in the morning, the arrival of the military under Captain Hooper caused attention amongst the crowd assembling. Trouble was brewing. The greatest faction fight of Kerry's history was about to take place. It has been handed down from generation to generation that the assembled Coolines from the Ballyduff side of the River Cashin were camped on the Kilmore side the night previously. The tents erected were in the region of 160. As the clock struck noon, the crowds had gathered around the tents of the hawkers. The atmosphere was taking hold as the alcohol took its merry grip on all present. In the high santals to the rear, where the present Ballybunnan Golf Club today is located, attention was to battle tactics, as the Lord of Black Mulvihills were arriving in large numbers, up to 3,000 in strength, to prepare for mortal combat. At the same time, according to local historians, the massive Coolian faction had moved along the Cashin River and crossed the river by a wooden footbridge, which at that time spanned the river and assembled on the southern side of the Strand, south of the racecourse, numbering up to 1,200, including women, to engage in mortal combat with their sworn enemies, the Lawlerback Mulvihills, whose ancestors were from Iraq de Connor. As the Coolines assembled south of the racecourse, they got into battle readiness. Long ash plants, sticks and stones were circulated to all, and their pockets were filled to the limit with ammunition. Old handles from shovels and pipes were brought into action as a massive faction advanced forward to battle, shouting their cooling war cries. The Lawler Black Mulvihill faction were gathering in the deep santals where the present Ballybunnan Golf Club is located today. Battle tactics and plans were being finalised as well as large amounts of potine were consumed. Weapons such as blackthorn sticks, hurleys, stones or any projectile which could be employed as a weapon was issued to this faction, which numbered 2,000 strong. A magistrate by the name of Thomas Ponsonby of Crotta was involved in the fracas, urging the Lawlers to get out onto the strand, and successfully diverting Captain Hooper away from the tents where the faction were drinking gallons of potine and whiskey. Ponsonby also persuaded another local magistrate, John Francis Hewson, that on the day the sticks were not going to be used as weapons. This was a total fabrication and a lie. Two o'clock, 
The 69th Regiment, commanded by Captain Hooper, takes up positions on the high ground from the Strand, adjacent to the racecourse, in anticipation of trouble. In the interim, Captain Hooper had succeeded in arresting some of the faction from the Lord of Black Murverhills, who were drunk with putty near the Hawker's tents. These tents were set up on the annual race day along the banks of the Cashin River, where locals would sell their produce. And Potteen. The first race was over with success. However, the Coolines marched from their positions on the Cashin side, yielding sticks and weapons of all descriptions. The faction fighters were now ready to fight. Local priest Father Darby O'Mahony, PP of Listole, pleaded according to sources with the faction. It is said he stated, For God's sake, listen to sense. This call fell on deaf ears. Captain Hooper, now realising he had a potential right on his hands, ordered his 69th Regiment to line across the Strand du Bali. This action proved useless, as the sheer numbers overwhelmed the regiment and left them looking very isolated on the Golden Strand du Bali. They sat back and just watched the proceedings. Later on, when the faction fight was ending, they did return to break up the last group's fighting. The mighty Coolines advanced rapidly around three o'clock. Their faction had the first upper hand on the Lord of Black Motherhill faction who were caught off guard. Cries, shrieks of the wounded filled the previous fair atmosphere of the Cashin, as the force of the Coolines and their Blackthorn Six had its effect. The Coolines had the upper hand, but it was about to turn against them. The Lord of Black Motherhills retaliated, discarding their putting jars and the sandals, forced their way onto the Strand de Bellier with 2,000 men, women and old men, armed with black-torn sticks, cudgels, maces, horseshoes and stones, hacked and slaughtered the Coolines who were forced to give ground around four o'clock. The tide was going out from the Cashin due to the larger faction, the Lawlers bringing all their skills to bear down on the heads of the Coolines, who, realising their cause was lost, ran in panic for their boats around four o'clock with the Lord of Black Motherhills on their short tails yielding black-torn sticks and stones. Along the shoreline, the Lord of Black Murverhill faction had been waiting, armed with stones and ready to fire, waited for the moment when the Coolines would retreat for their boats. This moment had arrived. A bombardment of stones and rocks hailed onto the open boats of the Coolines as they retreated to their boats to such an extent that the wooden boat capsized and its occupants were drowned. This later was known in maps and documents as the boat upset. It is said locally in the Ballybunin area that the Strand de Ballier was covered with wounded and dead after that fateful day and that the river was red in colour after the blood of the fight. Captain Hooper now entered the fight with the 69th Regiment and began dispersing the remaining factions who were still fighting up to the last, even the women. One quotation handed down through the pages of history from one of the Lord of Black Murverhill clan who led the battle was What we did not kill of them, we drowned the robbers. One of the many traditions associated with the Bally faction fights was the Coolines. If a Cooleen woman was married to a Lawler family, she would fight on her father's side on the day. So many as a man got a belt of a horseshoe from his wife on the day. Famous fighters. The O'Sullivan. The O'Sullivan came up with a lethal weapon, a cross between a black thorn with prongs from a pair of thongs with spikes. This effective weapon, which he used on the day, killed many Coolines, leaving many wounded in his wake. He was never charged or imprisoned. Magistrate's inquiry. At Ballinow House Causeway, truly weeks after the fight, a number of local magistrates sat. Those were Hewson and Fairfield, both at that time were deputy lieutenants of County Kerry. Also present was Thomas Ponsonby, Brownrigg and Mason and the Reverend James P. Chute. Another report of the time, which is dated the 19th of June 1834 in the Limerick Herald. The Limerick leader mentions that 40 individuals were interviewed at the proceedings in the stole. One person who was present on that fateful day of the battle related that he saw one tall unknown man armed with a hurley and stones having killed six or seven men with his actions. Local priests of the day, whose parishes bordered the fight near Ballier, refused to give evidence on the day, citing the result would harm their relationship with their flock. A comment made by a magistrate, which he stated, how could it have upset them, apart from the fact they could not stop the battle? Sworn inquiry. 
Dated the 22nd to the 25th, 1834. The Bellier faction fight was so well known internationally that many inquiries were undertaken what had happened in that isolated remote part of Ireland. The English Prime Minister, Lord Melbourne, ordered a sworn inquiry dated the 22nd to the 25th, 1834, which took place at the RIC barracks in the Stole County, Kerry, Ireland. The inquiry was conducted under the Earl of Kinmare and included the public prosecutor. A wide-ranging report was read into the minutes of the inquiry about the police and military actions on the day and that the fact that the local priests had played their role in trying to halt the massacre on the day and also the fact that the priests had preached prior to the belly fight from the altars. The area of the races were spoken of and the precautions that were undertaken. Local magistrate and deputy lieutenant of Kerry, John F. Hewson, from the newspapers of the time related, that these factions, known as the Orochdy Connors and the Coolines, were to fight at the impending farmers' races. His concerns were related to Captain Hooper and Tralee, who musters his military, the 79th Regiment, were dispatched to the potential faction fight in Baleen or Kerry. Captain Hooper, accordingly under orders, matched his men on horseback from barracks in Tralee and arrived at the scene in the morning. On that fateful day, on the Golden Strand de Baleen, the military of the 69th Regiment under Captain Hooper were outnumbered badly, with only 60 rank and file, two subalterns, three NCOs. Hewson, who according to sources had arrived early and observed that there was no sign of either faction, thinking the fight was not going on. However, the calmness was short-lived, as a barrage of stones came in the direction of the magistrate. A fight broke out within the area of the den-erected hawker's tents, when large quantities of putting and whiskey were consumed, resulting in an argument which led to a fight. This was put down quickly by the military who took the yielding weapons from the offending individuals. This was a foretaste of what was to transpire. As the afternoon progressed, local sources have related that the scene of the battle in Bali was frightening. The river was covered with blood and the dead bodies floated in the afternoon tide near the Blackthorn Six they formerly used. The right act had been read at this point and the military at this stage in full control of the battle, quelling the remaining fighters on the strand. On the grassy banks of the river were strewn over a wide area debris from the battle, broken blackthorn sticks, stones, horseshoes and other lethal weapons which were employed as projecting missiles during the fierce deadly fight. The military and some of the magistrates did give assistance to the drowning and the dying on the day. This was noted at the sworn inquiry but it was indeed too late for others who sadly lost their lives on that fateful day, which was for the enjoyment of the annual Bally races. Captain Hooper and his regiment did arrest several, but in their attempt the air was filled with another sound of the Coolines being drowned in the river by the boat upset. The sight of drowning people trying to swim ashore but were being pelted with stones from the shoreline. The military went to the scene and tried again to save their lives but alas, too late. The victims' bodies were washed up days later on the Golden Strand de Bellier. Many claims and counterclaims were made at the inquiry, read the military under Captain Hooper, and the actions of the magistrates on the day at the Bellier Strand, which itself did not come to a proper conclusion. Many of those arrested were released. Some of those who committed murder were never charged or apprehended. It was now to be forgotten, a page of history left closed. The cause of the fight has never been ascertained, but some locals and historians have speculated that the argument arose at a fair day at a market day in Listol, North Kerry, over a bad bag of potatoes in 1831. Some also say it arose over a woman, but according to locals, they fought for the sheer love of fighting. The race meeting was banned forever in the area of Bali and was moved to Dua, first to O'Hara's field, where they fought fiercely again, with many hurt and injured. Finally, it was moved to Listol, which now the annual Listol race meeting, or Harvest Festival. Ironically, thousands of people still make the journey to stay in Ballybunnan due to the race week, not realising that the races originally started here. 
the famous Cliffs of Dunneen on the low whistle. I arranged that many years ago for my YouTube channel. The tune itself is a local tune, composed overlooking the famous Cliffs of Dunneen. From the Cliffs of Dunneen, we travel across the Shannon Estuary to our final journey. A journey to the holy island of Scattery Island or Inishkohig. Welcome once more to Danny Houlihan's Irish Experience. In this episode, I will cross the Shannon Estuary to County Clare and relate the story of a holy island on the river, a saint and a fierce serpent called the Cahog, all interwoven into Danny Houlihan's Irish Experience. As the mist rolls back on the Shannon Estuary, the site of a round tower and old ecclesiastical buildings can be seen. This is the holy island of Inishkohig, or Scattery Island. The island of Inishkohig takes its name from the Cahok, or the sea serpent, which terrorised the island. Tradition has been handed down from generation to generation that when St. Senan arrived on the island, an angel directed him to the highest point. Senan then ordered the monster to vacate the island, which it did, and it did not stop until the creature arrived at Duluk Lake, Mount Callan. St. Sinan was born in a place called Mylock, Kilrush, County Clare, in 488. St. Sinan's parents were Erman and Congella. Various sources have stated that he was the grandson of a monarch of Spain. St. Sinan's birth was prophetically announced by St. Patrick on his visit to County Limerick. Sinan, as a young boy, was placed under Abbot Cassidon. Later on in his education, he was placed under St. Nall at Kilmana, County Kilkenny. The Saint's Missionary Life St. Sinan in his lifetime established many churches. Sinan established a church in Inniscorti in the year 510 or 512. The area is today known as Temple Shannon. Cornwall, St. Sinan's Cove. In France, Brittany, at Plusane, Church of Sinan. Sinan is also believed to have visited Menevia, Rome and Tours, returning to Ireland around 520 as an elderly man at that stage. In Ireland, he established a church in Inishkara, County Cork, Inishluana, at Deer Island, Inishmore and Mutton Island. The saint had several churches in County Clare, four blessed wells, such as the Blessed Well in Kilrush, Kilkee and Wellocka. The monastery was founded between the years of 535 and 540. Saints that visited the island of Inishkohig were St. Ciaran and St. Brendan. The monastic area of Inishkohig or Scattery Island. Baronies of Moyarta and Clonderlawn Thoman, Barony of Conello, County Limerick and part of Narkerry from the river field to the Atlantic. Legend of the local chieftain. A local chieftain feared St. Sinan and plotted the saint's downfall. He engaged the power of a local Celtic druid who was brought to the Holy Island. On the approach to Scattery, a massive wave rose up and drowned the chieftain and the druid, halting their evil deed. Women on Scattery Island Tradition relates that St. Sinan's mission forbade women on the island, but females could land on the shoreline. Cliganor, the Golden Bell. Tradition relates that St. Sinan was out one day in the company of two other saints, at a place called Kilsenan, two miles northeast of Kilkee. During a lengthy conversation, the Lord was called upon to make a choice who was his chosen one. The heavens opened and the golden bell descended on the saint's head, indicating the stature of St. Sinan. St. Sinan's peace, and that of his celibate monks, was relatively short-lived, when a West Cork woman called Conora arrived on the shoreline of Scattery Island to die. St. Conora was born in Bantry, County Cork, and was an anchorite, a very holy woman of high standing, whose feast day was the 28th of January, 
St. Connor was also the patron saint of sailors and fishermen. Tradition relates that in a dream, the Lord appeared to Connor and directed her to go to the holy island of Scatry. In that dream, St. Connor saw all the churches in Ireland, but Scatry Island stood out as a shining light and assigned to her to go and visit. It is stated that on experiencing this dream, she replied to the Lord, quote, Let me be buried on this most holy of islands, she replied to the Lord, unquote. St. Conor immediately departed her community in West Cork by foot, arriving many weeks later on the shoreline of Scatry Island. Her access onto the island was refused immediately by St. Sennan, citing his chastity vows. The County Cockburn saint debated with St. Sennan, quote, Christ came to redeem women, no less to redeem men. No less did he suffer for the sake of women than for the sake of men. No less than men, women enter into the heavenly kingdom. Why then should you not allow women in this place? Unquote. Saint Sennan refused again. Saint Connor rebuked the saint. Here on the shoreline of Scatry Island, I will stay until my death. But the waves will wash away your grave, St. Sinan replied. St. Connor replied back to the saint, Leave that to God. Sadly, due to the long journey from County Cork and the health of the old woman, she died on the shoreline of the holy island of Scatry Island in the year 530 AD after receiving communion from St. Sinan. St. Sinan and his holy monks buried the saint under a large slab on the shoreline of Scatry Island. Aidan of Lindisfarne, whose feast day was August 31st, was a disciple of St. Sinan. Aidan was a mentor for men and women. Did St. Sinan have a change of mind after St. Conor? We shall never know. St. Sinan died on the 8th of March, 544, and according to local sources, was buried within the confines of Temple Sinan. His grave, a special one, as miracles have been associated with stones from his grave, which in local lore gives protection from various diseases and drowning. I took a boat trip a few years ago with a few friends to Scattery Island on Robert Stack's boat from Saline Pier in Ballylongford, North Kerry. What struck me from the quayside at Saline Pier was the fact that everyone was excited on where our voyage was going. A special place. It felt to me as it did to others, that it was a pilgrimage. The boat cut through the still waters of the estuary, with the historic ruins of Carrigafoyle Castle in the distant mist, still defying time and tide. Entering the Shannon estuary, the boat bobbed up and down in the water, as we made our way towards the holy island. As the mist settled, the image of a green island emerged. A round tower broke the estuary skyline. We were now nearing our arrival, the Scatry or Inish Cahig. I thought to myself, this view would have been similar to what the Vikings encountered when they sailed up the estuary in those dark days of plunder. As the boat neared the quay, the views of the tower and all the monastic ruins were in full view. The lighthouse and the once-occupied village could be seen no silent. I walked slowly along the grassy pathway, passing all previously whitewashed ruined houses. My thoughts were, who are these people? What was their life like here on the island? And the hands who built these houses? Today, now covered with ivy, their roofs now fallen in. The round tower stood proud from the landscape. As I walked through the round arched doorway, I could experience the feeling of peace. Looking upwards, where the upper wooden floors were once located, in the darkness I could see light from the windows on all the cardinal points. One could just imagine the monks in hiding in those ancient days. In the shadow of the round tower and abbey, I played a tune on my bagpipes for the memory of St. Sennan and his mission and the islanders which once lived in this special place. Thank you for joining me on this episode. I will return again to Scatry Island in the future. 
to his people, his heritage and his rugged coastline. This is truly Danny Houlihan's Irish experience. The Holy Island of Scattery Island, or Inishkohig. I hope you've enjoyed our St. Patrick's Day show. I have. And for those who have tuned in from around the world today, we have honoured St. Patrick, our Irish culture and music. Finishing off the show, a few more tunes for myself on the pipes. The first is an Irish traditional tune called Rakish Paddy as an air. Then I put the pipes through his paces with Rakish Paddy again as a reel. The second reel I composed myself. The third is a traditional reel. Then I change from pipes to whistle with the tune The West Awake at slower tempo. Then it's put the foot on the flagstone with the finale with the three reels to finish. I played this set many years ago at the International Rose of Tralee and I got the feet dancing. So for me, Danny Houlihan, Donald Garoda Houlikan, us Balan Vananig on St. Patrick's Day and we meet again, Slán.
Thanks for listening to our show. Through its people, its heritage and its rugged coastline, this is truly Danny Houlihan's Irish experience. Bye for now.